Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast where we invite the brightest minds to discuss the ideas that matter most in politics, society and culture. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and this week we're going to be talking to the author, Maya Goodfellow, about Britain's approach towards its immigrants. Maya's an expert in race and racism in the UK, and her new book, Hostile Environment, uncovers the history of government policies towards asylum and immigration. But before we speak to Maya, I'm joined by Prospect's digital assistant, Rebecca Liu. Rebecca, hi. Hello, Tom. (laughs) Now, um, immigration is the subject that's kept giving, for better or worse, often for worse, in British politics in uh, recent um, years. And we've had quite a few articles about it in the magazine as a result recently. Amelia Gentleman, who originally broke the Windrush story on that scandal that you'll be talking to Meyer about um, soon. But I don't know if you caught in the December issue, the, 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 the most recent issue, Daniel Howden writing about a huge experiment in something called reverse migration. Yes, so he's covered the first grand experiment um, occurring right now in Benin City in Nigeria of what's called the Assisted Voluntary Return and Reintegration Program. I mean, it's a deeply depressing article. I'm not sure how you felt when you're reading it, Tom, but I think it's very revealing that it seems like the only people who have really benefited from this are what he says, a new group of scammers. Yeah, um, kind of hucksters. The hucksters who pretend that they've been abroad uh, and take the sort of funding from European governments to tell other people, oh, I've been abroad, don't go, it's horrible. But I mean, it's, what's striking about it, I guess, is it's a fairly ineffective programme that was always going to be ineffective and yet has quite a lot of money going after it, which is a sign of the European Union's desperation um, to... Um, keep people out because there is this kind of magnetic pull of the rich world to the poorer world and it's producing some dramatic responses whether it's this kind of thing or Trump's build a wall. Yeah yeah and it is really depressing to see I mean the thing that also struck me about this article was well obviously there there is a lot of money um, or that that states are willing to spend money on immigration Uh, it's less on apparently actually resettling people and more about these kind of doomed programs here in the uk too as well as across africa and and southern europe immigration's 
kept coming back as a subject, hasn't it? From the Brexit vote where it loomed so large until just recently this awful case with um, the dozens, I think it was, of Vietnamese workers who died in a lorry in Essex. Itself possibly a sign of vicious traffickers, but also possibly a sign of the desperation that the strict measures to keep people out by legal channels drives people to. Yeah, so I was talking to a post-colonial theorist, uh, Homi Baba, about this, and he gave a lecture at the ICA this summer, and he had a really interesting idea, which was often we think of immigration laws through the lens of legal institutions and sort of abstract rights, Um, but the life cycles of a migrant are often much more complex and much more intimate, and the fact is that there are going to be thousands and thousands of people willing to risk their lives. Um, the current way of understanding this in the, eyes, in the eyes of the law just aren't grappling with those properly. Now, um, I've suggested there's a kind of global phenomenon at work here. Um, I'm very parochial in that I've only ever lived in the UK, but you've lived in the US and some other places too. Do you feel like it is a shared conversation in the different places you've lived? It's really hard because I I think the places I've lived have often been, I'm still quite young, so I've been around students um, and, and in places where there is a very lively international culture. So I haven't encountered much of that myself. Um, something I do find very interesting, though, is when I will meet, a friend will say, oh, my, my dad's like, uh, quite racist, <laughs> um, very anti, anti-immigrant. anti And then I'll meet them and, and they'll be really lovely to me. <laughs> I think it really betrays you. Oh, the arbitrariness of a lot of these prejudices of I am in many cases a migrant here. I'm not treated as such by many people because I you know, sound the way I sound and, and are, are friends with their daughters or sons. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It, it makes me think that you could extend this empathy to a much greater level. And yet, like when it comes to the political stage, we're in the heat of an election. As you say, you're still quite young, but even three or four years ago in this country, there was a sense that, you know, even the Labour Party would have mugs saying controls on immigration. But this time, it does feel like there's a bit of a choice, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I saw, not sure if you've seen the new Labour Party advertisement where there's a sort of immigrant in the background and they put him against a tech billionaire um but i thought that was so interesting when i first saw it because it was in my very short memory the first time a major political party has gone out and said you know immigrants are not the problem yes it was about the idea that the 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 immigrant was being scapegoated wasn't it yes for runaway capital yeah um and yet we'll see i guess how popular that kind of like very radical approach is compared to even in 2017 under Jeremy Corbyn there was a big thing about Labour will end free movement absolutely seems so clear now yeah yeah we'll, we'll have to see where it goes okay let's uh, leave parochial UK electoral politics there for a moment and now move over Rebecca to your main conversation with my good fellow hello you're listening to the prospect podcast and I'm here with my good fellow Maya, um, so you've written Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became the Scapegoats. Um, let's begin with the title itself. 
So in the introduction, you make this really interesting point that whereas other government policies would have misleading titles or, or try to couch things like, say, spare room subsidy for the bedroom tax, um, the hostile environment is is literally what it says on the tin, right? Um, can you talk us through the short history of the hostile environment as a government policy? Yeah, so the hostile environment is essentially a package of policies. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's talked about as if it is a thing, but yeah. actually it's a number of different policies that were brought in through the 2012 and 2016 Immigration Acts. And I think it's really heavily tied to the coalition government and David Cameron's and Theresa May's government's real desire to bring down so-called net migration, right? So they had this big target that they Mm. talked a lot about. And what the hostile environment, this package of policies was intended to do was encourage people, they said, to leave the country Mm -hmm. um, through like a lot of, I would call what are quite punitive policies, the ways of monitoring people Mm. and... Um, trying to assess whether people had the so-called right documentation to be in the country. So when they would meet up with some of our public services, so essential basic services, really like housing, um, healthcare, employment, that's when they would be they would be targeted, if you like, to see if they had the right documentation. Mm-hmm. People who would be considered to maybe not look like they would be British. So this is where race kind of comes into it. Or people who maybe wouldn't sound like they would be British. So it essentially turned nurses, doctors, landlords, all kinds of people into border guards, right? People who it's not their job to do that kind of um, that kind of enforcement of the border. And but I suppose one of the things that I I argue in the book is whilst we need to understand the hostile environment and the real damage that that's done to people's lives, which we began to see through um, the Windrush scandal, that this the 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 UK has long been a hostile environment in some form or another for immigrants, and I think in a way, as bad as these policies are, and as much as they should be scrutinised, and actually they're still in existence despite the fact we had the Windrush scandal, mm. we also need to see it as part of a much broader history of immigrants being treated as if they are a problem within the UK, and that's kind of how we've arrived at the point where, as you say. We even have a government proudly declaring mm. that their set of policies is called the hostile environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for many long-suffering followers of British politics currently, there is a sense that everything is tied to Brexit. Everything started with Brexit. Everything from now on will be viewed through the lens of Brexit. But the point you make in the book is that there's a long history of it. The debate about immigration didn't start with 2016. Yeah, and I think that that's actually um, is at times forgotten. And so one of the responses to Brexit was, how have we become this country? Mm. What what kind of country are we now going to turn into? And whilst I think it's very important to recognise the fallout from Brexit in terms of what was a really racialized leave campaign, mm. the spike in hate crimes that we saw after um, the result, we shouldn't downplay those things. Actually, if if we ca- keep hearing politicians and people say, how has Britain become this country? We totally ignore the kinds of policies and the kinds of rhetoric a lot of people have been having to deal with for decades, right? And a lot of the sentiments that politicians have been playing on for a very, very long time. And I think we our analysis then becomes, it becomes way too fixated on Brexit, although that is the big issue of the day, will continue to be the big, the big issue of the day for a long time. If we only focus on that, I think we don't 
we don't really diagnose the roots of the problem, like the roots of the issue, which were accentuated. A lot of this was accentuated by Brexit, but I, I would argue it wasn't entirely caused by it. And so that's what the book is trying to do, situate, situate what's happened with the referendum, but also what's happened with the hostile environment in a much broader historical context. And I think one of the really good ways we can see how this wasn't just just the EU referendum is David Cameron, one of the main proponents of Remain, talked about immigrants as swarm, yeah. right? He talked about people trying to seek refuge in the UK who were in Calais at the time as a swarm. And so this is someone who would advocate for Remain, but also is kind of really hyping up the anti-immigration rhetoric in British politics. And so I think that complicates our idea of Britain becoming this terrible country with the Brexit vote. Actually, some of those people who are advocating for Remain played such a big part in ramping up anti-immigration sentiment in the years preceding the vote. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, absolutely. And in the book, it's um, both a kind of longer political commentary on British politics, but it is also... It also provides testimony from lots of people affected by these policies. So you talk to young people, sort of older veterans um, who have experienced change in British politics over time. Obviously, there's not one type of immigrant and they have all different stories. But did you get a sense that they all actually had a very similar reaction to all of this? Yeah, one of the things that I realised when I was transcribing a lot of the interviews with people, you know, who took the time to speak to me to relive what are often really difficult um, periods of their lives, meeting the UK immigration system, trying to navigate it and consistently feeling like they don't have a route to just gain some of the most basic things in life, like wanting to know that they're able to stay in the country, wanting to know that they're able to have a job and a house to live in, and that they're going to be able to stay with their loved ones, people they've made connections with from moving to the UK. One of the things that really struck me when I was listening 
back to all those interviews was that almost every single person I talked to, regardless of the outcome of their their status, regardless of what how long ago they'd come to the UK, was that they knew the dates the dates they arrived, the dates they put, submitted applications, the dates they received rejections, and the real specificity that that kind of um, highlighted, that they understood, they knew, they remembered the exact moments when they had each of these different interactions with the state in terms of their immigration status, really highlighted for me just how much it shaped this moving through the immigration system shapes people's lives just how much how bad the impact can be in terms of people um entering the system and then not having any clue about what is going on and i think the other thing that kind of i felt came up time and again was that people felt like they were being treated really badly felt like they were being either not communicated with properly or being kind of brushed to one side very, very quickly by people that in, officials they would interact with. And they, it, like you know, their whole lives are kind of dependent upon these interactions. And so I did think that a lot of people were really frustrated with the, the immigration system, but also frustrated with consistently being treated as this, as if they were kind of a burden on the state. When a lot, for a lot of people, that's just not their lived experience. Their lived experience is very, very different. And I think one of the most troubling things is I would reject a lot of the discourse around integration mm. and, um, you know, that's kind of, it's kind of a, it's interwoven into the in immigration debate, but it's also, it's kind of its own issue. But what I find really interesting is that when you talk to a lot of people who've moved through the system, is they say it makes it really difficult to know if you can set down roots or to know if you're going to be able to stay in the country. So politicians are talking about so-called integration and the problems of so-called social cohesion, terms that I you know, would kind of probe and find really troubling. But at the same time, the very policies they're implementing are meaning people are kept apart from their loved ones, maybe are in the country and then get deported and work to try and come back or aren't sure if they're going to be able to come into the country after having left. There's so many different things that policy does. And one of the things that I think policy does is it makes people's lives less secure. It makes their right to stay in the country less secure and their right to be with their family or their children. It throws that, it plunges them into total um, uncertainty. And I think that that reality is often lost when politicians are talking about the cold hard numbers. Absolutely. And reading it, I, I got the sense, as you said, that a lot of these people are set up to fail really you know they, they're put in situations where they can't get a job because they don't have the right id that's needed at the time they'll come into the country and claim, want to claim asylum but then they'll be told actually you came to the country under a visitor's visa you can't you've you've already lied so you're not allowed to claim asylum um and and yeah i, th I think that bleeds into the other parts of your discussion on what is a good immigrant and what's a bad immigrant um, and maybe the more interesting thing to look at is how immigrants come in and are set up to fail really in this in the system. Yeah, I think that that's it's really interesting. And it's something actually that um, the, the book, The Good Immigrant, which was edited by Nika Shukler, I think that that exposes quite well this the problem of this narrative of what we've heard actually for quite a long time. Um, from different governments is okay certain immigrants certain groups of immigrants are fine the criteria by what makes you good shifts over time but it's always kind of constructed as certain sets of people are okay and certain sets of people are not okay and not only do I think that is 
ultimately a really problematic narrative to have and how that bleeds into policy um the negative effects of that because you know what happens if you aren't that good person what happens if you aren't earning in the right way or you don't fit into the right category does that mean you shouldn't be allowed to move does that mean you should have to stay in a country where you maybe don't want to be in a country you don't necessarily want to be in a country that maybe you can't earn the living that you want need to live in order to support family it's problematic in that way but it also what it essentially does is the goalposts are always moving right so you have politicians saying oh high skilled migrants you know the people that contribute but that'll shift right so if you come into the country and you might be considered a high skilled migrant or a good migrant or the right kind of person you can be here you can be in the country you can be doing whatever it is that you're doing working or not and then that narrative about who is the right person to be in the country can just change under your feet and so all of a sudden you're the bad migrant and i think that that Actually, the response to the hostile environment, that was almost one of the most troubling things for me is, although I think it was right, the the outcry when the Windrush scandal broke and how much people's lives were shaped by this by policy, you know, people who had the so-called right to be here, that's incredibly important. But the response was really troubling because the response was, oh, we still need these policies for un- people who are undocumented. And what you lose then with that response, what is obscured from our discussion is that people can become undocumented for so many different reasons. And so the inhumanity of the discourse that produced, like allowed us to get to this point where the Windrush scandal could even happen yeah. is almost reproduced in the response, right? It turns human beings again into things it puts them under a label that we aren't really probing why people can become undocumented one of my favorite parts of the book is this clever argument you make which is we don't need to foreclose discussion we need more conversations um and we need to have genuine open conversations about immigration race and and what britain really is because i think it's so easy for often those on the right looking at these discussions to just, it's its the idea that, oh, you can't say anything anymore, right? Or they're, they're destroying my free speech. And actually what you're saying is this good faith discussion about immigration hasn't happened. Um, there's a chapter where you talk about new Labour's former policies and there's um, a quote you say, the outcome of the debate on immigration um, feels like it has already been decided before it has begun. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I found, I guess before I, like one of the things that led me to write it um, was looking a lot at like, I get what the Labour Party and what the Conservative Party would be saying on immigration. And what you'd hear time and again is this phrase like, we need to have an honest debate. Right. So you hear that from people like Yvette Cooper when she was Shadow Home Secretary, but you'd also hear it in a slightly different formulation um, from someone like Nigel Farage. Right. So there was a there was this although I don't think those politicians have entirely the same outlook. There was a consensus about we haven't talked honestly about immigration. And what I found most frustrating about that is, yeah, we haven't talked honestly about it. But why can't we talk about the role that race plays in the debate that doesn't have to equate to running around saying, everyone who dislikes immigration is racist, which is how that is often boiled down to. Um, And I think you kind of see that most clearly with New Labour. One of the big fallacies, I would argue, is that New Labour created this really welcoming immigration system. They were too liberal and they let too many people in. They miscalculated how many people were going to come into the country. And what happened was because a certain number of people came into the country, there was this automatic backlash against immigration. Mm. And what I would actually argue is that anti-immigration feeling isn't 
itself just produced by the number numbers of immigrants in the country actually what was happening is new labor you know early on in in their 13 years in power on the one hand saying immigration is good for the economy and so we're gonna we are gonna open up the immigration system a bit there's some truth to that but what they were also doing was saying but we need to stop the wrong kind of people from coming in so they also had some really like what i would see as negative rhetoric on immigration where they were saying some people here are going to be a threat to you and so we need to stop those people from coming in or we need to deport them and so there was on record so many instances of ministers talking about certain groups of immigrants in particular asylum seekers they would talk a lot about asylum seekers as being really bad for the country and boasting about how they had really high levels of deportation and so that part of new labor's record i think isn't probed enough when we look at how that anti-immigration sentiment rose i think they were bolstering some of the message the anti-immigration messages even as they were having this slightly different narrative about immigration and the economy yeah and i think this all ties to a, a really big question which could probably be a podcast episode in of itself really which is you know what is britain and and what would it really mean for britain to meaningfully look at its its own history um i'm gonna read a quote from Avatar Jewel, who was the president of the Indian Workers Association, who you quote in the book, writing in 1961, um, for hundreds of years, Britain has ruled the countries from which immigrants now come. The standards of living there are appallingly low, partly due to the policies that Britain pursued. The high standard of living that the British worker today enjoys is partly because of a low standard abroad that makes it possible to import raw materials at a cheap price from there. Under these circumstances, Is it morally justifiable to disclaim all responsibility and close all doors to immigration? I thought that was really powerful when I read it, because I think that sort of pointing to what we're discussing, right? That conversation, what do we owe the world or what does our world history make us? Um, It's not really happening. Yeah, I think that for me, what that quote actually does and the thing that I'm really interested in is like this notion that Britain is a developed country and it developed itself. I would probe this notion of what development means actually, but even if you're gonna buy that, Britain's relationship with its colonies and former colonies has been incredibly important in terms of its um, economic growth, right? And so what that for me kind of does is it, it, it exposes this myth that people in, in Britain are somehow more industrious or better equipped to develop and they did so internally and in it like because of inherent qualities that are within Britain right and so actually it what I, what I think it does as well is this idea of the economic immigrant right which I have a lot of I mean if you read the book you'll see I have a lot of you have a lot of problems with this term but actually it it unsettles this idea because the response can be, well, we have a lot of wealth in Britain. It's not distributed evenly, right? We have a really unequal society, but we do have a lot of wealth in Britain. Britain is is a wealthy country. And so whilst the global economy functions in this way, why wouldn't we expect people to move around the world? Why wouldn't we expect that that would happen? And because it has this long colonial history, which this quote kind of speaks to, I think it it begins to like almost deal with this myth that people who come here are the drain and people come here are the issue when actually it's people all around the world who've come and contributed to Britain. So your right to come here, I don't think should be contingent upon how you contribute and in what ways. But I do think there needs to be a recognition that actually people always have come to the UK and contributed and 
if you look at things like the NHS, that's where we really see that happening. But I think actually getting to grips with the history, Britain's colonial history, and as well as its more recent history, is really necessary to understand how it is Britain is the way it is now and why it is that certain groups of immigrants or people actually who weren't immigrants, who were citizens of the empire, why it is people came here, right? Why what, why people were coming at the time that they did and what they did when they came here in terms of how they did kind of keep some of these key institutions going when they were in their infancy, like the NHS. And I suppose one of the things I said before was, you know, we need to understand how race exists in this debate. Yeah. And I think the way we need to understand that is by understanding what race is, Yeah. right? And so... We can only understand how race functions as a tool of governance and a, a way to control people by understanding colonial history and by understanding how race was established during colonialism to create a racial hierarchy, a racial hierarchy that still exists and that still basically shapes our immigration debate in in shifting ways. It's very complex. It's not, it's not so straightforward that it's just stayed the same, but it's still there. And so that's what I find most frustrating is as soon as you talk about race, the response is, you just want to call everyone racist. And actually, what a lot of anti-racists want to do is figure out where race is located in the de debate, how it manifests, and then do something about that, mm. right? Do something about changing people's minds, addressing this idea, these, these very racialized ideas about immigration and what are often very racist ideas about immigration that are often infused and um, reproduced by our politicians and our media. Um, thank you, Maya. And finally, for listeners who are interested in learning or potentially even doing more about Britain's current immigration policy and, and supporting people um, who are on the other side of it, what organisations or resources can they consult or? Yeah, so there's a load of um, people and organisations I spoke to um, it for the book. Um, so there is JCWI, which is the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. There's the Migrants' Rights Network, MRN. Um, there's there's places like Aquaba, which I mentioned in the in the conclusion of the book, that are essentially social spaces for people to, regardless of immigration status, to go and get advice, but also, you know, just actually just spend time with other people and hang out together. But then I would also say, um, I mean, I'm happy for people to contact me depending on their local area. And I, if I know any groups, um, then I can kind of point them in the right direction. But usually figuring out your local anti-deportations groups, anti-raids groups, they exist not just in London, but across the country. And so there are a lot of spaces where people are doing really, really good work that are underfunded and that are really necessary. So I would encourage people to look online um, or to go through some of these bigger organisations to find out where some of those smaller local organisations are. Thank you, Maya. Thanks. And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with Maya Goodfellow. Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats is out now with Verso Books. And you can also read Dan Howden's essay on the reverse migration experiment in Benin City, which we talked about in this month's issue of Prospect, which is on newsstands now. Rebecca Liu is this week's producer. If you enjoyed the Prospects podcast, please do leave us a rating and review, which really does help. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>